production of Dirty Mo Media. My 27 years in the joint, seven of them was in solitary confinement. And here goes Randy Lanier, the points leader in this IMSA Endurance Series, a guy who has progressed so much. You've basically fund that operation with smuggling. 100% from weed money. <laughs> when I go to prison, and who comes to prison? John Paul Sr. Walking the yard every day. We went through a riot together. You being on the run for a total of how long? All of nine months. Nine months yeah. you were on the run. Yeah. I'm a chess player. You always have an escape plan. Hey everybody, welcome back to the Dale Jr. Download, episode 393 in the Bojangle studio. Your host, Dale Jr., with my co-host, Mike Davis. Mike, the last time they heard from us, everybody was uh, enjoying a Randy Lanier interview. And there's so much to Randy that we decided to, to cut this into two parts because we just wanted to be able to get to the whole story, right? There's so many, I mean, Randy's flying from out of state and there are so many things that I wanted to ask him, wanted to be able to get to all of it uh, while we had him. And so um, we're thankful for, uh, for the opportunity to have, to have, have to, that much time with him. Where we left off, he was waiting on a shipment in San Francisco. It was supposed to be in New Orleans. He's about to tell us all about that, plus, his life on the run for nine months, and then his prison sentence, part two, is going to be amazing. So thank you to Ally for uh, uh, bringing us the opportunity to uh, have a Randy Lanier part two. And Randy is uh, Randy's eager to get to the rest of the story, and so are we. So let's go. San Francisco. So the boat... That was the boat that you diverted through the Panama Canal. Am I right? That one was the boat through the canal. Okay. Because you had that boat going to uh, Louisiana. Yep. And you got suspicion that... Well, someone told me that they were watching, they were waiting. On they, that barge. They're following me. They, they know my load is coming in. And so how do you... How are they not just going to go... How are they not going to go wait this boat? Uh, yeah. is turning and now is going this way. That's the boat. Why aren't they? They didn't have Homeland Security. So ah. They, ah. All so, them satellites. So they could not track a boat like that, like like they can today. There's no, no tracking. Right. Yeah. So you were able to divert. So Actually, that's too good of a story just to gloss over. So basically, here's what happens. You get suspicion that the government knows about your barge. The FBI. The FBI, and that yeah. they are in New Orleans where waiting, waiting for it to arrive. They're searching barges for three months. Is this your last? Is this literally like your? You're done. I'm done. Man. <laughs> I'm, I'm done. Son of a gun. Yeah. And, right. so, and so how is it how hard? To, get, is it hard to get it through the Panama Canal? No, it, no, it went right on through. Right through there. Yeah. There's no your checkpoints or anything there, right? Yeah, it's just Go going through. through the through the yeah. uh, channel locks. Right. How long does it take to divert something from New, from six New months. Orleans? To, Took six months. And what does that do in terms of a wrinkle in the operation? It had me paranoid as can be. <laughs> For six months. For six months. And I'm being followed by the FBI, the DEA. 
own uh, you're where you're where you are wherever yeah, you're going. Yeah, I'm in Florida and and I'm trying to race at the same time. I uh, I had found out in April that I'm being watched by the FBI, and my load was ten days off shore. So I turned it around. I got Indianapolis 500 coming up in May, and and Indy's big. Yeah, yeah. Indy's <laughs> a big deal. It's how could you fo- how could you drive a race car uh, or focus on uh, anything uh, there, with that uh, on your mind? Well, one thing about it, as you know, when you strap in a car, yeah, you're, yeah. But, well, but even you know, I would have been like, I, a, so I'd have been a basket case. Look, I'm, I'm good. I'm good in the car once I'm dry and racing. I'm my energy is being focused yeah. on what I'm no doing. Yeah. But then when a yellow comes. Yeah, it, I you talk, start thinking, about, thinking about, it. about the load I, going I to San Francisco. <laughs> I talk about it in the book. All right. All right. When the load comes and like uh, somebody crashes, and now you got, you know, yellow laps where, got you a little know, time to think. Yeah, you can scrub your tires off and get ready, but your brain just you're send, thinking about a, you're your brain about sends your, your messages, and you can't ha- be having that in a race car. No, yeah. Uh, so you were dealing with that. I was dealing with yeah. that because when Ga- Gary. Uh, the FBI got to him in his house in 80, 81, right? He went, he runs a Daytona 500, comes home four days later. They, they're at his door oh, in the middle my. of the night. And he bails himself out and continues to race, right? And he goes through his whole trial process racing. Um, <laughs> he wins the ASA championship oh, knowing he's going to jail. Yeah, that's And right. he's got a report. He's going to turn himself in. He's supposed to go to he's supposed to go to jail. He wins the championship, goes to the banquet, celebrates his championship, and the yeah. next day drives up uh to turn himself oh, in. Oh boy. So I mean, when I talk to you knowing that you're going knowing what you have going on. You've got a barge with 165,000 65,000 pounds 100, a week 165,000 165, yeah. pounds floating through the ocean <laughs> headed to San Francisco while yeah. you're trying to qualify for the Indianapolis 500. I just don't know how you I don't know how you can uh do those things without getting physical ulcers and yeah. or like without just literally losing your mind. Uh how did you not just go yeah insane? It would have been I mean some most people put put in that situation it would, it would it would have been obvious to anyone that knew them that damn dude something ain't right about you something's going on what is it what's wrong well, with if you ask my wife she'd say something ain't right with you she knew <laughs> she I, look, she was I would be at restaurants and and I staring I'd, off in the middle of the distance I'd tell her oh I think these people of FBI over here they're watching me uh you know she, oh you're paranoid uh, you got to stop and I bet um, I bet that was pretty rough yeah it was rough and um. You know, what's crazy is where we put our attention, our energy follows. And so when you're racing, I'm trying to put all my attention and focus on what I'm doing at hand. And then when I'm off, I'm trying to reestablish my attention on getting what I need to get done right without anybody getting in trouble. You run in the Indy 500. Yeah. You finished 10th. Rookie of the race. Yeah, rookie of the year. What year was this? 1986. 86. Yeah. You had a kind of a tough career, though, in Indy. Yeah. Like, Indy didn't go as well as Indy. No, Indy didn't go. Indy car. Indy cars. Didn't go well. Why? Didn't go. Uh, Hopping from sports cars to open wheel cars with the different weight ratio and the horsepower, just complexity of different elements. It took me a while. I had never driven open wheel cars before 
So it was a learning curve for me. Yeah. Um, big difference. Um, started doing better. I made a really bad decision in uh, my first in year of in doing Indy cars. I went to Europe and I, I went to the Lola factory and the March factory. And I couldn't make a decision which chassis I wanted. So I bought two of each. <laughs> I bought two Lolas and two Marches. Wrong. I'd go test tracks, testing, and I'd drive the March from, let's say, the morning to lunch. And then from lunch to the afternoon, I'd drive the Lola. It was too much data. Mm-hmm. I, I was, mm. I, I was, it was Crazy. overload. Yeah. It was, wow. yeah, it was bad decision. So yeah. my first year was uh, just, uh, we didn't have good results. The following year in 86, I didn't race Indy in 85, almost, mm-hmm. I tried to, but I had a run-in with a, with a marshal there, with a uh, chief steward. What happened? I'm out on the back straightaway. It was the rookies. And I'm out on the back straightaway. And at the time, I'm running a little over 200 mile an hour. The yellow light comes on. No one's in front of me. I got an empty track. I look behind me in my mirror. No one's behind me. So I stayed on the throttle because we had set up purposely to get the very first pit coming off of turn four because I get good tire, tire temps. I'm trying, to get, I'm trying to get good tire temps so I can tell what my chassis is doing. So you're going to just run hard to the pits. I ran hard all the way through to the end of the track, and then I got down on the apron. Right. I'm trying to get the hottest tire temps I can get. Right. You're going. You're trying. You're. If you slow down on the back straightaway, and by the uh, time you get to your pit, your temps aren't worth in, even yeah, reading. So you're right. trying to run hard, yep, pit road. Yep. Get down pit no, road. Nobody's your, in front of me, right. so I, st- I, I stay, stay, yeah. stay on the throttle until I have to get off and get down on the apron and come into my my very first pit stop, my uh, pit mm-hmm. where we are. I get, I'm there. I'm waiting for a sign to go back out. Chief Stewart comes over, tells me get out the car. So I get out the car. And he calls me over to the to the other side of the wall, and he tells me he flew he threw the yellow lights. Why didn't I back out the throttle? I said, Well, nobody was in front of me and nobody was behind me. What the f- does it matter? Excuse me. He looks at me. He said, Well, you know what? You got a lot more learning to do. I want you to pack your bags. You're out of here. Mm, damn. I said, What? I, I guess I disrespected him, and I, I, I got a little lippy. You know, maybe I was too full of myself. I apologized to him. Didn't do no good. I went and got AJ. I got Tom Sneaver, and they were in my corner, but then he wasn't hearing it. I was, uh, I guess, I kind of bad-mouthed him a little bit. I said some stuff I shouldn't have said. Tried yeah. to retract it, but once it comes out, it's too late. <laughs> so I left Indy. That's 1985. And I said, all right. I went and got a, a former Atlantic car, open-wheel car. Mama, I told you, I haven't been driving no, no open-wheel car. Mm-hmm. So I went to uh, two races in a, in, a for, in a former Atlantic, the second race I won. The first one, I finished seventh. So you're getting some experience. I'm getting some experience. I yeah. said, all right, I'm coming back. All right. Yeah. So what happens between, you know, your final IndyCar race or or 86 seasons going through you run any 500 yeah. right uh you and the you and the group decided y'all were going to uh, you know take off disappear you know, change your identities am i right well my i i decided uh about me i i had been 
I was under investigation. You knew it. Knew it. Yep. And so I hired a group of lawyers, and I sent them to speak with the Justice Department, mm -hmm. the U.S. Attorney's Office. What and were you hoping they were going to do? I'm trying to negotiate a deal. Oh. oh. All right. So my, I wanted to um, cut a deal to where I could do maybe five or ten years, pay them X amount of money, and be done with it. And how was that and received? That wasn't received very good. They wanted Unfortunately, it was in Southern Illinois. If had it been in Florida, I could have probably cut a deal because Bill, my buddy, my partner, he just cut a deal. He gave him, I think, $7 million, and he got a 15-year sentence. He only did, I think, five years. Bill Whittington? Yeah. Okay, so he did cut a deal. Yeah, he cut a deal. Got it. Yeah. And Don, too. They got, Don got 18 months for money laundering. Okay. Right. Because they had cut a deal the year prior, I knew it's capable with the Justice Department. So I went in and offered them $10 million and um, a 10-year sentence. They said, no, we want 18 years. We want complete forfeiture and complete cooperation. Damn. So I said, no, i tell you what I'll do. I'll give you complete forfeiture, everything I've made, and I'll give you 20 years. They wanted 18. I shot up with 20. This is months into talking now. Yeah. Months this going, is by. going by. They said, no, it's now going to 22 years. <laughs> <laughs> they wanted you, because they want you to basically they sing. They want complete and, cooperation. And, and, and they, they want names. They want names. And I was at the mom frame that we shook hands when we started this operation that, you know, we don't tell, tell on nobody. Mm -hmm. That's just how we was brought up and when well, a handshake is me is better than a contract. Mm -hmm. And I was kind of living by what I had agreed upon and I stuck to it. I couldn't work out anything with the government as far as they was hell bent on complete cooperation. So I, I fled. So when you, is the story that you went into the diner and saw the, uh, your home being in, mm -hmm. uh, invaded on television. Yeah. Is that true? Yeah, that's true. So you were in the diner going to visit your wife because she's in the hospital. My son, yeah. What's this? The sad part is we, we had twins coming. Really? We had, my my wife was pregnant with twins and we lost one of the boys. Mm. So my son was born January 21st and without his brother. We lost his brother. Mm -hmm. Well, too much stress. Yeah. So we lost the one twin. He was born, and seven days later, I was indicted. So was it January 21st when you're in the diner and you see that your no, was, home is being invaded? No, it was uh, seven, January 28th. Okay. Seven days after he was born, oh. I was. she had some complications, yeah. and she had to stay in the hospital longer than what we ever thought. And I was out on bail on another case. I had gotten indicted back in November of 1985 or uh, 1986 um, for a, a some shrimp boats that some people was smuggling that I they put me involved in this smuggling operation. I really wasn't involved. I was really kind of innocent on that case. Mm. So um, when you fled, what, what <laughs> had you had you been prepared to flee? Had you had a like a like a, yeah, I had a plan. You had a plan. Yeah. A flea plan. A flea yeah. plan. A tough flea plan. Right. right. <laughs> and so what is the plan? Look, what do you do? I'm a chess player. So you always you want... You were already ahead. 
you already you always have an escape plan. Yep. So what did you do? You walk out of the diner. Where'd you go? I went back, packed my bags, got in my car, and drove to a stash house in the middle of Florida that nobody hardly knows about. A hidden hidden property on 15 acres or something. Mm-hmm. I stayed there until I grew my beard and my. <laughs> you stayed there for weeks. I not uh, yeah yeah, yeah. Uh, a little over a month. Okay. Uh, yeah, and uh, then I went to from there. I went to New York City to where I had an apartment. Bus, plane. A tractor trailer drove me in, and, and I stayed in the. You drove in. You rode in a tractor trailer. I rode in a tractor trailer in, in the sleeper compartment. Yeah. <laughs> I didn't want to be seen. I right. was so scared, and that's the paranoia. Yeah. I I was afraid that a toll booth person might. Because it's all on the news. If you're a sports fan, you might have seen something on ESPN. Gotcha. So, so you go to New York to an apartment. I go Well, first I go to Pennsylvania to a stash house. Mm-hmm. And there, from there, I organize a realtor that I know to get me a, an apartment. I already had an apartment in New York, but too many people knew about it. So I had to get it. It took me a, about a month to locate another an apartment. So wait, so an apartment in New York? Yeah. How long did you stay there? He didn't. I I I stayed there for I don't know a couple of months maybe to finalize some stuff that I was going in because I had just brought that load in. You're still working. I'm collecting. Yeah. Right. Right. You're still running I your st- operation. Yeah, I still had about five mil out to me. So then, when did you? Where'd you go from New York? From there, I flew over to uh, Geneva. I had a British passport. Hey, Dirty Mo Media fans, I have exciting news for you. Next week, Dirty Mo Media will be releasing its newest original series, Roots and Revival. Roots and Revival is a six-part YouTube series on Dale Jr.'s return to late model racing at North Wilkesboro Speedway, a beloved racetrack that despite two decades of dormancy and abandonment has found new life. Subscribe to Dirty Mo Media's YouTube channel now and never miss any of Dirty Mo Media's content. Homes.com knows that when it comes to home shopping, it's never just about the house or condo. It's about the home. And what makes a home is more than just the house or the property. It's the location and neighborhood, Dalton. If you have kids, it's also schools, nearby parks, and transportation options. That's why Homes.com goes above and beyond to bring home shoppers the in-depth information they need to find the right home. And when we say in-depth, we're talking deep in-depth. Each listing features comprehensive information about the neighborhood, complete with a video guide. They also have details about local schools with test scores, state rankings, and student-to-teacher ratio. They even have an agent directory with the sales history of each agent. So when it comes to finding a home, not just a house, a home, this is everything you need to know all in one place. Homes.com. We've done your homework. Back up just a second. What does your wife know? You're now on the run. You just had a son. Yeah. You already have a daughter. Yeah, seven years old. How much do they know what you're doing right now? You they had know, to sleep playing. They know exactly. They know what I'm doing. They Not didn't. my daughter, but my yeah, but your wife. My did. wife does. So she knew, and did you, did you communicate with her at all? Yeah, I gave okay, her so a list of pay phones that she could go to. Okay, and I would give her a date each time I call her when to be on another pay phone. I couldn't trust the pay phones, so I had to have. Once you use a pay phone, it was over. Never go back to that pay mm-hmm. phone because it'd have a tap on it. Maybe. Are, are the feds? talking to her 
Are there are the they, feds trying to get her? Sure, to? they yeah. Sure, matter of fact, they they came into her and told her they was going to indict her because I had a car collection, and they wanted my car collection. So I called her one time on the payphone from Switzerland, and she said that, you know, they said they know about the car collection, and if I don't give it to them, you know, they're going to indict me. So I said, all right, tell them you're going to have a, you're going to, I'm going to give you a telephone number, and I want you to call this lawyer in about a week, and um, he'll have the keys to a warehouse and, and the address to a warehouse where all my cars are. And they have it. They can have all my cars, but I pulled out a couple. <laughs> <laughs> Which ones did you pull out? I I, I pulled out a, a BB512 Ferrari. <laughs> Where is it? Today? It was a 1982 Ferrari. Remember, I told you I went to Le Mans in '82. Yeah. When I come back, I bought a, a a BB512. Where is that car today? Do you know? It got robbed. Someone stole it. It's gone. Good it's gone. heavens. Yeah. So um. <laughs> I, okay. I gave it to a friend and told him, "Hey, just just hang keep, on to it. You just hang on to it. And this guy's not involved." So, yeah. so back to your fleet plane. You flew to Geneva. I flew to Geneva, Switzerland. Yeah. Okay, now pick up there. Then, how long did you stay in yeah. Switzerland? Uh, about nine months. Doing what? Uh, a lot of banking. Huh? A lot of a lot of banking. Banking. Yeah. Like, banking. What does I've, that mean? I've been storing money over there for years. Okay. Yeah. Okay, so you're so just, I'm moving accounts. You're moving accounts, moving I'm withdrawing, money? moving accounts. Right, yeah. Yeah, trying to save your money. Trying to save my money. Yeah. Like, uh, it meant something to me, I guess. Yeah. And so, <laughs> <laughs> did you get accomplished what you were trying to accomplish with that? Yeah, it was a lot going on. I had a, built a casino in 1985. You what? I built a casino in <laughs> 1985. Gardenia, California. Oh, my God. But of course. <laughs> so... The I was trying to sell the casino. Yeah. So that was a part of the. Oh, yeah. You're just trying to offload. I'm, I'm trying to sell the casino, get my get the funds that I needed to get from there. I'm not worried about no more paychecks that was used to come to these. When we built the casino, all I had was the money sent to Geneva. I never even collected the money. It just showed up in accounts. Right. Okay. So I was trying to sell the casino. I'm trying to move some accounts that Charles had known about. See, mm -hmm. I never oh. used to deposit the money. I used to have people do it for mm -hmm. me, right? So the people that knew about my lawyers and portfolio managers, yep. I wanted to get it out of their possession and get it into something that no one knew about but me. Got you. Right, and then also trying to get my, trying to sell the casino. So that took months and months, yeah. right? You're scrambling trying I'm, to yeah. get all your money away from everything that it might be tied to. To anybody that knew about anything. Yeah. And, yeah. and had Charles revealed his... Charles wasn't a rat yet. He wasn't, because no. that happens when he has a testify, right? Like, that well, happens... During all this time that I'm in Geneva, mm -hmm. he gets pinched at a driver's license trying to get a... Fake a, ID. A fake ID. And he cooperates, like, right away. Right away. And yeah. did you suspect that he would do that? I had a feeling... That if um, if he gets pinched, he's not going to hold up. Yeah. Uh, what I gave had, you that feeling? His personality, his mm -hmm. character. You know, you can kind of your intuition oh, yeah. tells you about people. Mm -hmm. You know. I, I understand <clears throat> that now. I mean, like after just that that one hour, one and a half hour documentary, you know, Alan doesn't seem like a guy that's ever going to break. But not everybody's an Alan. No. <laughs> you know. Yeah. So where where do you go from Switzerland? 
So, why, I guess why, sorry, while you're in Switzerland, are, are you, uh, are you still like, man, somebody's following me? Or you, still oh, God, feel, yeah. you still feel like everywhere you go, <laughs> yep. you're like freaking out. Look, being on the lamb is not, I would never advise that for anybody. There's no would, sense of, there's no sense of relief. It's no, no life you want to live. Okay. Right? Because you're constantly thinking someone recognizing you, a hotel, a manager, uh, wherever, a coffee house, right. a restaurant. Every Being on the lamb is not the... all it's supposed to be or nothing. Yeah. I, I, I didn't like it at all. So where'd you go from Switzerland? I had a house down in Antigua with a, a, a boat, a vessel, mm-hmm. um, down to my house in Antigua. And I had this grand plan. It, the more I think about it, it was ridiculous. But I had this plan. Let's hear it. All right. So the plan was go to Antigua. I had a crew down there. And I had a boat captain. I had two boat captains down there. One was a legal boat captain, and the other one was a smuggling boat captain that was also indicted. So he was hiding out at my house in Antigua. Okay. Nobody knew about this house but me the, and the two boat captains. So I go to, I go to Antigua, and I got a 60-foot custom hatteras that I, I guess I got attached to. I, I had bought it, brought it new. I gutted it and uh, customized it with all kinds of fancy stuff inside the, the boat <laughs> from snakeskin mm-hmm. the dining area all snakeskin and just i customized yeah. this boat it was like ridiculous but <laughs> um would never do it again so uh my plan was uh, when i was in geneva i hired a french crew mm-hmm. at a brokerage company a boat chartering boat company to meet my vessel in venezuela they were supposed to meet this vessel so i go to antigua I was going to tell my captains to take the boat to Venezuela to this certain marina and just leave the boat. That's all they know. They don't know who's meeting compartmentalization. Mm-hmm. You got it? Mm-hmm. So they, all they was told is they're going to go to a marina and drop the boat off. But I went out on my boat that when I arrived, they said, well, let's go fishing and diving. I like to get lobsters and conch and stuff. How long have you been at the at the house at this point? I was only supposed to stay one day. I stayed for five days on the I only stayed at the house about two days, and then I went on the boat for five days. So I was a week there. You were there a week? Yeah, I was, Where? On, I was only going to be one day. Why? Why was I there for a week? Why were you going to be there just one day? Where were you going after that? Back to Geneva. Okay. I wanted to get back to Europe. You were gonna, your plan was to stay in Switzerland? No. I was going to probably go down to New Zealand. Eventually. Yeah, they got some racing down there. That I, you were gonna, my, my, your new life was going to be... That was your new life. I was thinking about going to racing in New Zealand with some kind yeah. of cause. You were going to go race <laughs> yeah. and live in New Zealand <laughs> and assume yeah. a completely new life. Yep. yep, that was the plan. So you went to Antigua yep. on this this house. Is it on an island with other? Is there other houses on the island? This house was at the top of the rainforest on a mountain that uh, over. It used to be a sugarcane plantation, mm-hmm. and now it was a pineapple plantation. Okay. It was a cool house. It was, um, the driveway was a little over a quarter mile up, the, up this mountain. Mm-hmm. And it was like all, all old cannons overlooking the, the bay. As you drive up, it was like all these cannons from wreck ships. Yeah. And as you drive up to this house, you come up into the big, there's a big greenhouse for all the botanical plants. Uh, the house was surrounded by botanical gardens. Mm-hmm. But in front of the house, I had a, 
uh, like a half of a, uh, a, a shipwreck uh, sailboat Dang. with a big uh, 90-foot uh, mask mm -hmm. with with a crow's nest uh, up front where yeah. you could climb up on the front of yeah. my, on the top in front Sounds of the amazing. house. Oh, it was cool. It had a big wraparound veranda so around staying the whole there, house. Staying I, there was not safe. Like st to, to staying there was kind of safe. I thought it was, but unbeknownst to me, months earlier, I had said I was in Switzerland for nine months, but I had taken out about three months earlier. I had met Pam, my wife, and the kids in an island called St. Martin. That's where my dad and Teresa uh, went on yeah. their honeymoon. So, yeah. so I had my I had Pam and my little boy, my newborn boy. He's like several months old, mm -hmm. and my daughter, who's seven years old. I wanted to see him. I was missing him. Right. I was dying. I wanted to see him. So I had them go a roundabout way to uh, different islands and eventually get to St. Martin. Uh, and so I arrived in St. Martin three months prior. And it's got a Dutch side where the casinos are and a French side where all the nice beaches are and good restaurants. I got my boat docked at the French side of the island. And that night, one night I said, I had been playing tennis with Pam, and my daughter was chasing him. We was having fun, you know. Um, and I, one day I'm playing tennis, and I go up to the restaurant on top of this mountain. Where the, the tennis uh, court is where I'm at. It's like at the top of this little mountain with a restaurant overlooking the tennis court. I go up inside the restaurant to order something, and I tell Pam, I think that guy's watching me. I, I got a feeling he's looking at me. She said, oh, man, come on. No one knows you here, blah, blah. She don't believe me. You know? I said, oh, I think he's watching me. Well, I go back that night, and I go from the French side to the Dutch side. I want to go play casino, gamble. In the middle of the night, something comes up. I want about 4 o'clock in the morning, I want to leave the island. I'm paranoid. So I go. She's sleeping on the boat. I wake everybody, hey, we're leaving. Get us off untied off the dock. We're going to St. Bart's, which is not far away. So we go over there, motor over to St. Bart's. Well, when I come back, I give my instructions. Take the boat. I want you to uh, pull the boat out of the water here, sandblast the bottom, paint the bottom, get all the barnacles off, and then take the boat to this marina in Venezuela. So my message was delivered. I go to Geneva for three more months. Well, they don't tell me when I call Antigua and tell them I'm coming, they don't tell me, hey, when we came back from St. Bart's, we got pulled up by uh, St. Martin police, and they questioned us. They didn't tell me. But now when I fly to Antigua, the people that I told you I thought was watching me at St. Martin, uh, one of my distributors, his lawyer had hired a private investigator to try to find my vessel. And that private investigator was the guy that was in that bar that day. He called the FBI and said, I've located Randy Lanier. He's in St. Martin. Damn. They had my crew hemmed up. I had already left the island until they missed me. By the time the FBI got there, they just missed me. But nobody told me. I go to Antigua, and now two agents for the last year has been flying the island looking for me, and they found my boat the day that I was on it. And they arrested me coming into the harbor. When you're uh, on your boat, you see the plane flying over. That's the plane. You jump on a skiff, run into the, you know. Oh, yeah. So I 
that morning I'm getting lobsters and conch. I'm going to have a conch salad and yeah. some lobster salad yeah. for lunch. We pull up anchor. I had seen a plane land on a grassy runway. And my captain said, oh, they're just probably tourists. Well, it was two FBI agents. So I pull anchor that day, going to go have lunch at, 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 in, at, at Antigua. And as I pull into the, the harbor called Falmouth Harbor, there's like a big cliff on one side of the inlet. And it's a reef over here. And I pull into the bay. It's a big bay full of sailboats. And as I get in, I'm looking at the docks, and I don't see nobody. And I thought, there's nobody on the docks. Must be okay, but there ain't nobody there. And as I pivot around, I see a 90-foot PT boat. It's gray. It's like a Navy boat. And I said, no, what do you think they're doing? They said, they might ask for our paperwork. So I said, no, I don't. My instinct told me, I don't feel good. Pivot this boat around, let's go out to the ocean. And as we pivot the boat around, the big PT boat came and blocked the inlet. Now I'm stuck in the bay. So I unleashed my, I got a winch with a bow, uh, on the bow of the boat with a dinghy. We put the dinghy in the water. I get out, get in the dinghy, and I go to a part of the bay. I go around a bunch of sailboats. I tie up. I get off, and I'm on a dirt road. And I'm going to go back to my dinghy. But as I walk back down the dock, that PT boat had launched that dinghy, and there's four guys with rifles pointing them at me. So I said, oh, they're here for me for sure. Yeah. So now I take off running down a dirt road. Where are you going to go? I'm trying to get as far away from these people as I can. <laughs> are you like, they're going to hide somewhere uh, in the bush well, or what? <laughs> no, I'm thinking if I can get over south of this mountain, there's a deserted beach on the other side of this island. Maybe my thoughts are I can hide out until I can get back to where my I got some inf- uh, I got some cash and uh, passports at my house. Maybe I can sneak back to the house. This is my thinking. Yeah. But as I'm running down a dirt road, I'm like got no shoes. I've just got a pair of baggies on, no shirt, and here comes a dust storm, and it's coming. I'm saying, oh, there's jeeps. Yeah. It's the local people on the Antiguan police and they end up chasing me up a hill and they capture me there. Damn. Off to the joint I go. That was it? Yeah. They put you right on the plane? No. They take me and put me on the island in the police department in the island for overnight. They lock me in like a closet. They just put me in a closet with no light. (laughs) I stayed there all night and then the next day uh, they tell me they're kicking me off as an undesirable. They don't want me on that island. I'm thinking, oh, man. Oh, what have I done? Great. Man, yeah. <laughs> this is good. Yeah, this is, I'm, yeah. I'm going to get another shot. And so they take me to the airport the next day, me and my boat captain. You ain't seen the FBI guys yet. Ain't seen the FBI yet. Oh, that's right. Right. That's right. Well, no, when they, when they captured me, they brought me to the, back to, the, to my boat. And I seen two agents standing there with aviator glasses, okay. and I knew they were FBI. Sure. So I knew something, the FBI is here. But then they told me to kick me off the island because I kept telling I got a local attorney there. I told him, please call this attorney. He's friends with the, the president of the, of the island. Well, they wouldn't let me call him. So when they tell me to kick me off the island, they're going to take me and fly me to St. Martin. So I, I'm waiting in a room. They got me handcuffed and shackled. And then they, I hear the flight, uh, Antigua to St. Martin. I'm going, man, I'm really going to St. Martin because they tell me, okay, this is your flight. So I walk out on the tarmac. I walk up the steps, handcuffed and shackled. And as soon as I get up to the top of the American airline, those two agents I saw at the boat, 
flashed the FBI card. We're FBI agents. This is considered American soil. You're now under arrest. They put me into the seat of the plane. The captain gets on the radio and tells the passengers, ladies and gentlemen, this flight is being diverted. It's no longer going to St. Martin. We are flying from Antigua to Puerto Rico. And any passenger that does not disembark will get a free round-trip destination ticket to any place we fly. Nobody got off that plane. <laughs> Everybody stayed. And I said, oh, they was lying. You know, they, they, they fooled me. Yeah. And so off to Puerto Rico I go to, to the um, FBI headquarters there and arrest me and put me in a Puerto Rican prison for a couple of weeks. So, um, And that was a trip in Puerto Rico. That, that ends you being on the run for a total of how long? All of nine months. Nine yeah. months yeah. you were on the run. Yeah, from January to October. What are the emotions that you're, um, once you sit down in that seat, uh, what's the emotions that you go through? I'm certain there's <clears throat> probably several. And I mean, you talked about not being, not, enjoy, not enjoying being on the run. Yeah. So some relief, but at the same time, some fear of just yeah. what's this mean for me long, yeah. long term. So a lot of times we make decisions on fear based without even knowing it you know i'm thinking i'm going to puerto rico i still got a chance to maybe get myself out of the situation i'm uh, optimistic oh you haven't given up no i haven't given up i never gave up yeah so i get booked in this old puerto rico prison and they had just come off of a riot they'd killed a couple of guards a couple of inmates and they had just come out of lockdown and it was all gang the whole prison was gang run by Nieta. It's a Puerto Rico game. And I don't speak Spanish. So while we get there, I see an amazing thing. When we pull into the Sally Port, I see him dragging this guy, and he looks dead. It's a guy in an orange jumpsuit, but he's he's unconscious, bleeding. He's got hematomas all over his head. He's beat up, and he looks dead. And I see him dragging him by the armpits across in front of the bus that I'm on. And I tell my boat captain, man, the, the district attorney told me to waive extradition and come here because um, we, we'll just be here for a minute and then be extradited, but this is one of the most dangerous prisons in the world. So I told my boat captain, man, that lawyer won't bullshit. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> we ain't even got out, got here and we're seeing guys being uh, dragged, look like they're dead. Yeah. So they dress us out, they take us and put us on the across the yard, and we find a place to sleep. And it's 200 and probably 60 people in this prison with bids for 60. Yeah. It's no place, wow. to, no place to sleep, no, no bunks, no cells. Right. I end up sleeping on the floor uh, in, a, in a place where I found a place, and no one was sleeping there because it was in front of this guy, what they call the number two guy. Nobody wants to stay in front of his cell because he's a shot caller. And uh, the next morning, real early, uh, I felt a bunch of shadows over me. And I look up, and there's like three or four big muscled guys, and they got the day's newspaper, and I'm on the front page. Ex-smuggler, race car driver, uh, captured, Puerto Rico. And they're going, this you? <laughs> I said, yeah, that's me. They said, the number two guy wants to meet you. So that's the cell that I'm sleeping in front of. Yeah. And I go in there, and he tells me who he is, and he's doing 35 years, blah, blah, blah. 
And it gave me hope that, you know what, I might be able to get out of this prison. Uh, I was only there for two weeks, and they came What did the number me. two guy tell you? What do you want to see? The number two guy was, first thing he says, asked me if I smoke weed. I said, yes, I do. You know, he got out underneath his bunk or tray and twisted up a joint. It was was the big good? unifier. <laughs> weed. And, wait, in terms of quality, was it good weed? Nah, not like what I had. <laughs> <laughs> but y'all, and so that that was one thing I was curious about. Is you did twenty seven years in prison. How did you stay neutral? How did you How did uh, you stay in? Yeah. How did you stay in, independent? I, because that's that, that's my. You ha- get to choose. You. It just seems though, in some scenarios, you don't get to choose. Now, people, people press people in there. And, but for whatever reasons, I was blessed because one, I had a life sentence. People respect that. Two, I didn't cooperate. Three, yeah. I was a race car driver who some of these people are sports fans. They wanted to hear. So, you know, yeah. So they want, they, they respected that. Interesting. So I got, yeah. I got major respect. And by the end of my 27 years, things completely changed because the shot callers would come to me. And ask me for advice because uh, I try to be sensible, you know. Voice of reason. Reason for what? I'm saying you were a voice of reason. A voice of you reason. You were a great place yes. to get a yes. base, uh, you yes. know, non-biased yeah, opinion. If you come to me and tell me, hey, you're from North Carolina and your boy over here has been gambling and he owes 60 bucks to the poker table and we're ready to beat him down. So you got to go talk to him and tell him to pay his bills or we're going to stab him or beat him down. So things like that, you know. Uh, maybe somebody didn't pay their, their bill at the store, mm-hmm. meaning there's a bunch of people that run store, two for one. You come in and get a soup, you owe two soups. You know, that's, a, that's how it Where do you get the two soups from? From the commissary. <laughs> okay. From the commissary. I got you. So people buy commissary, they stack it in their locker, and they run a little illegal store out mm-hmm. of this prison cell. I got you. So people don't have money, they'll get stuff on credit. So that wasn't just in Shawshank Redemption. That's really happening. There's a store, like a retail situation going oh, on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, I'm sure. Yeah, yeah. yeah. A lot of creativity. So um, respect I mean, goes a long ways in that society, but the society is not like anything you can imagine. Um, yeah. That life should be. It, yeah. it, it's it's not good. Now, now you said you never gave up. I guess you always had hope. Always had hope. How do you, how do you rectify that when one you have a life sentence and two you said you got put in solitary confinement yeah. for two years, which I, that is uh, is that not solely there to break you? So I spent seven years in solitary confinement out of the twenty-seven. Majority of the time was for investigation of escape. A couple of t- uh, I got oh, two two dirty urines for smoking weed. That that was thirty days stints. Yeah, that's nothing. Were you? Trying to find, were you like yes. trying to find ways out? Yes, yes. Had, uh, had look, you concocted some pretty good plans? You felt I. Whenever I go to a prison, I'd keep it to myself, and I would look for ways to. I thought I could, with some ingenuity, I could come up with an idea of how I could get myself out, mm-hmm. and it gave me ways to. Something to do. Something to do. Not that I was going to do it. Yeah. I mean, if, if I thought I could make make it happen, I would. But it, it's <laughs> you like kept your mind um, busy. what else you going to think about? Kept me mind <laughs> kept my mind busy. But and and some of the plotting and planning, I'd come up with ideas. And but then you have to maybe involve somebody. Mm-hmm. And next thing you know, 
if you got somebody involved. So you would get they're trouble. on to you. That's you how you would find out. Find out. Yeah. You you would get you would get punishment for even considering or even thinking or even planning an escape. So what happens if, um, let's say, someone owes you some money, say eighty dollars mm-hmm. for whatever you've given them something, uh, uh, you've loaned them some money or some stamps. And if they don't want to pay you the back, they might write a, a, a letter. We call it a kite to the lieutenant's office that you're trying to escape. So they don't have to pay you because you get locked up. They're just stalling off the ev- inevitable, though, right? Because, I mean, you're not yeah. going to be locked up forever. Yeah, yeah. that's right. But and the hell's coming with you once you get on, out. On a lot of time, Well, a lot of times you don't know who wrote the kite. Oh. You don't, they don't tell you who wrote the kite. Yeah, but you have an idea. You, know, you, you might have an idea. Yeah. But when, on, an, crazy. on an escape plot, if, if you get invest, locked up for an investigation of escape and they don't get to the bottom of it, they'll ship you to another prison. So I've been to Leavenworth. I've been to Lewisburg, Pennsylvania, Florence, Colorado. All these are U.S. penitentiaries. Terre Haute, Indiana, uh, Atlanta, Georgia. Coleman, Florida. Mm, that's about it. Well, I'm glad you brought that up, though. That how do you establish the the credibility and the respect when you're being shipped off to all those different prisons? With, I mean, it seems like to me that it resets the deck, right? I mean, every every prison has a what did you call them? A number, the number two or the, the shot caller. The shot caller. Yes. Every prison's got one, and they've got their own set of politics. I would assume. Yeah. And yet, you. It seemed like in 27 years you would have, you know, issues with that. Or, or maybe somebody just wants to make, a, make an example out of you. Yeah. But, but you were able to establish at least respect in every one of those? Yeah. The, my last nine years, I was a volunteer suicide companion. And that means I sat with inmates that tried to take their own life. I'd sat with them for four hours a day and talked to them. Some of them didn't want to talk. Yeah. But some of them did, and some of them shared things that they would never share with a psychologist or anybody from their childhood trauma. It's sad stories. So for nine years, I, my last nine years, I did that, and everybody respected me for doing that. I became a yoga instructor in a maximum security prison. That don't happen too often. Yeah. So, and the big, tough gang guys, they, they kind of want to belittle you. For, I said, okay, you're a tough guy. I get that. Come down to my yoga class, and I'll, <laughs> I'll break you off, all right? Because I'm doing power yoga. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm, I'm, did they do that? Did they some take of them you did. That? Some, some of them did, and I'd break them off. You know, they're not used to doing them static exercises. What do you mean break them off? What does that mean? Meaning, meaning that they can't hang. Because you got them doing some stretch that they I'm can't do? Not stretch. Uh, static exercises, planks and stuff. Yeah. And, oh, yeah. And, oh, yeah. Right, yeah. You got real buff built in prison. I was a big runner. Your physique yeah. completely changed. Big runner, thousands of push-ups. I do a thousand push-ups in forty-five minutes. Damn, what? Yeah. Lots of push-ups, yeah. a lot of pull-ups. I was a, a pull-up guy that, being little and lightweight, yeah, I could do a lot of pull-ups. The return to North Wilkesboro is something you're not going to want to miss. Hey Dale Jr. Download fans, this is Alex Timms, and I'm here to tell you that tickets are still available at www.northwilkesboroespeedway.com. If you can't make it out to the track, don't worry. Purchase the pay-per-view on Racing America for any day of racing action at racingamerica.tv. 
That's RacingAmerica.tv. Purchasing an event ticket or pay-per-view on Racing America directly supports North Wilkesboro and its revival efforts. Picture this. It's blazing hot outside and you need to head to work. You get into your car and turn on the AC to get the cold air pumping as soon as possible, but it doesn't work. Instead, blowing hot air out of your vents and directly into your face. No, your car doesn't hate you. This issue is commonly caused by low refrigerant due to leaks in the air conditioning system, and there's an easy all-in-one solution that will restore your cold air in no time. There's no need to go to the shop and pay lots of money when you can save time and money recharging yourself with AC Pro Recharge Kits. AC Pro Recharge Kits make restoring cold air easy for even those with zero DIY experience. And the AC Pro app offers clear, vehicle-specific instructions to help you get the job done in less than 10 minutes. So pick up an AC Pro Recharge Kit at any store selling auto products and confidently restore your car's cold air yourself today. Be a pro with AC Pro. You talked about um, going to Supreme Court. Went to Supreme Court. How many times? Um, four times. I didn't go. I mean, I, I filed for the Supreme okay. Court. Got you. Right. And so let me, I guess I'm, what I'm learning is, is that even during all of this, you never lost hope. No. Never. And so you were going to continue to try to find a way to be released from prison, you were going to try to find a way that you weren't going to serve this life term. You never gave up on that. And so take me to take me to that moment when you really started getting some genuine hope yeah. that this was really possible that you might be able to get out. You know, it's amazing how we draw to us people. You mentioned your wife is into the law of attraction. I, I want to just give you a little tip on that of my perspective and you hear about laws of attraction our thoughts go out in the universe and we draw back what we put out my opinion it's not your thoughts that draw it back it's your emotions not the thoughts it's your emotions and you see a lot of people that are in domestic violence and I mentored when I came out I, for five years I worked in substance abuse treatment industry mentoring a lot of Afghanistan veterans that had post-traumatic stress disorder, a lot of alcohol problems, a lot of opioid problems. And one of the things is, and I say I don't believe in coincidences, things happen to put me in a spot to where I can help these people, these, these Afghanistan veterans that I worked with for five years after I got my release. I'm still mentoring them today. I, I speak to them all the time. They're, we're friends. So my last few years, I had about 24 years in, and I get a letter, a big manila envelope, and in it is photos of these women in front of the White House, and they're marijuana advocates. They don't believe anybody should be locked up for this plant. And I'm looking at the, I go to my cell and I pull these pictures out, and these women has got my picture on a stick in front of the White House asking President Obama to release me because mm. I'm a nonviolent cannabis prisoner. They got pictures of them in California at events with my poster advertising to release Randy Lanier. I'm going, who are these beautiful women advocating <laughs> for me? And they're Amy Pobal and Stephanie Lander. Stephanie's now 76 years old. In her 60s, 
she had got approved to grow marijuana, cultivate in California. And she accepted it and started a grow operation, approved. The federal government came in and raided her and gave her five years. And she did her time. She came out and she started Freedom Grow. That's why you see me wearing this shirt. Mm -hmm. I bring light to a dark cell. Freedom Grow. Mm -hmm. So now they're advocating for me. These people I've never met. So I'm thinking it gives me hope. You know what? Now about the same time this happens, President Obama gives a directive to the Justice Department to look at all the nonviolent cannabis prisoners that are serving long, lengthy prison sentences for nonviolent crimes. I fall into that category. This is like a perfect storm is happening. Mm -hmm. Now, at the same time, I've got, at this time, a little bit earlier, I had gotten a motion from the U.S. Justice Department, uh, a att U.S. attorney, that they're going to file a motion extending my forfeiture. I owe $60 million still. Mm. They seized close to $150 million. I still owe them 60 So now... My one of my co-defendants, they got it on the barge. He files a motion for discovery. I took my stuff and watered it up and threw it in the trash can. I said, "They're not getting blood from a turnip." I'm, you know, I'm I, good. I, I'm sorry. I, I motion for discovery. A motion for discovery is the evidence. Uh, you got to show. Oh. Uh, I'm asking the government to show me why you're filing for. They, okay. they filed a motion okay. to extend my forfeiture for 20 more years, meaning. Anything I'm connected with, they could seize for 40 years. It's never happened before. I'm the first. Wow. So my co-defendant, is a, he became a jailhouse lawyer. So he files a motion for discovery from the government. Show us your evidence. evidence to prove you have a right to seize our stuff for so you, 40 years. Okay. Now I hire lawyers, mm -hmm. forfeiture lawyers. You did. Uh, yeah. Yeah. And um, we're trying to negotiate with... This deal that we know about now, and we file a motion for time served with the U.S. Justice Department, and they didn't fight it. And um, in 2014, I went to a court hearing on the phone in the prison, and they didn't fight the motion about um, time served. We filed a motion to time served to drop the life sentence, and I walked out to prison 30 days later a free man. Let me ask you this question, all right? When you are you going to that hearing knowing the potential is there for you to be released? Yep. And when you hear that you're released and you know why do you have to be there thirty more days? So I've heard this before with people okay. that do get released. They don't they're not turned they're not turned out the door right away. No. So why? The judge orders the Justice Department to release me within thirty days. Okay. They could have released me that night or the next day. But okay. they rate, they used all thirty days. Why? That's just how they roll. Because they so, can. Because <laughs> yeah. they can. Okay. And so, what are you doing for those thirty days? Those thirty days is. Uh, is that the longest thirty days of that the twenty-seven was the years? Longest thirty days. I'm thinking, oh my God, freedom's coming. I got my my, my wife now is my ex-wife. Mm -hmm. We both got divorced. My wife's my ex-wife. My kids now, were seven days old who was a twin, he's 27 now. Mm -hmm. Whoa. My daughter's now 35. 35. Yeah. Yeah. I come out of October the 14th. 
my son is 27 and he's got a, a, a girlfriend. I come out October the 14th, 2014. On October the 13th, 2015, my son's girlfriend has twins. Yeah. So now I'm a grandfather of two twin six-year-olds. Isn't that something? Yeah, it's That's amazing. Like, it's a ble- I look, I, it's a blessing because, man, now I'm watching these kids go up. Well, she's got them uh, today. Uh, she had them last night. They I, spent the night at the house. Did they? Yeah. So you and Pam got divorced. How far into your prison sentence did that happen? That happened before I went to prison. Before when you I, went to prison? When I, when I fled, she I, divorced. I had her. She, I, I asked her to divorce me. Y'all did it. She didn't want to. She didn't want to. I, I had a, a divorce, and I quick claim deed the house. That's I'm, right. My thinking is if if you file for the divorce and I give you this house and property, you'll have a place and a home for the children. Gotcha. They can't take it, they right? They can't take it. So you got but divorced to plan. You got divorced to try to protect her. Yep. Okay, so while you're in prison, she's coming to visit you. The kids are visiting you. Was that pretty steady throughout the 27 years? Kids. Did, yeah, the kids visited me throughout my the entire time. Well, sometimes we'd go a year, maybe a little longer because we couldn't afford it. Yeah, it, but there it's was two years at the most. The I I couldn't go. It was hard for me to go a year without seeing right. my kids. Man. But the effort stayed consistent. Oh yeah. All yeah, right. Yeah. How did you How did you maintain How do you maintain that relationship like that? I mean, there's love and 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 there's yeah. The, that so there are a lot of phone calls. Yeah. Um. A lot of phone calls. My son now, what? I talked to him about working out, Dell, at a young age. Throughout the, about I, I'd write him about how to work out and how to do things. I'm a big workout so guy. So a lot of writing, a lot of. He's a workout a guy. He miss. He hits the gym every day. He's like, you know, something rubbed off on him yeah. in a good way. So y'all had a common bond, more yeah, or less, that was developed yeah. that. That lets y'all be able to connect. Yeah. And it trans that transcended any resentment, any frustration, anger, disappointment. Y'all broke. Y'all were able to work through all that. Well, uh, on my part, it has. I if he's got some resentment and stuff. When I first come out, a little bit of it showed. I we you know as a father son. Sure. You know he's a grown man, um, trying to do his life, and if some tight situations come up that I didn't agree about. Well, where were you? <laughs> right. That's a fair <laughs> argument, right? You know? yeah. Yeah. Uh, For sure. So that's the choices I made, and I made the wrong choices. Yeah. I don't want you to make the wrong choices. Yeah. So um, when you are released, one of the best thing, one of the best parts about this story to me is that you and Pam, you and Pam are till, still together. Yeah, we got remarried uh, uh, back in November. So have of you last year? So all right. So have you ever asked her why that? What it is that? keeps her have you ever asked her that why she's why, why she hanging she's around staying, with me why she's still there because we're just so comfortable together i guess we're just uh, made for each other we are did you like, never ask her that though i didn't ask her why she's just hanging out with me for so long well yeah. did she ever harbor any resentment or need to forgive you on anything um, it would be fair to yeah, be feel yeah, that way we've talked about that she's forgiven me and she loves me and we're moving on and uh, we're just so blessed to have the family back together, and uh, yeah. family means a lot. Where are you in terms of your relationship with motorsports? Motorsports, I love motorsports. I go to races when I can to, as a fan. Um, 
just went to Indy 500 for my first time since I drove. Uh, that was your first time since 1986. Yeah, this went, year. Yeah. Where'd yeah. you? Where were you at the track? Where'd you watch I, the race? I stayed up at the Holman Suite. How about that? I was in the Holman Suite. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. I got invited there, and I got to tell you, and uh, you know Doug. Yeah. Doug Bolts. Love Doug. Yeah. Love that family. They. I met them there. Um, just. I got much respect for them. I uh, had really good talks with them. Uh, you know, of course, when I left uh, uh, the racing community, I was like the black sheep of the family. Yeah. Um, from a lot of well-known drivers saying I was bad for the sport or whatever. Yeah. Um, but now uh, I went up for Legends Day. You've been embraced. It, I'm, the fans were so good. Look, fans are one, they're like family. Mm. They, they really are wonderful and I signed autographs on Legends Day. I'll be back next year. Uh, looking forward to it and looking forward to the whole atmosphere. But for several years after I got out and released, I was a high-performance driving instructor. I know. In so a tell Corvette me about school. that. So that was quite well. I uh, was driving in a Corvette PDG, Performance Driving Group, uh, Corvette School in Florida, Daytona, Sebring, and Homestead. Why'd you stop? And, well... We had a difference of um, personality, and I had been asked to do some brand ambassador work for a cannabis company, a public-traded company yeah. that's on the stock exchange. And it's a, it's a market that I know quite well. I grew, like I told you, I've been <laughs> yeah. burning it for 53 for sure. years. Yeah. And you still smoke weed? I smoke weed about every day. Have you today? No, not today. Not, not today. Yet. We're still right after still, we finish still this. Still young. So, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I keep it real. Look, yeah. But yes, I will smoke after I leave here. But usually, I smoke before I eat breakfast. It helps my stomach a lot. Gotcha. But anyway, had a had a difference. Uh, being that I got back involved with cannabis, uh, and this is the sad part: the propaganda that's been put on this plant for generations is unwarranted. It's unnecessary, and for whatever reasons, it, it came over generation after generation, and it still exists because we still have people incarcerated when 38 states, it's legal in some form and fashion, but yet there's people that's sold 50 pounds that's got six years in prison, but yet there's a corporation here, several of them that I know, that sell thousands of pounds a week. They make $300 million every quarter, yeah. every quarter. And they're selling thousands of pounds, the same thing that these people are doing, but on a much smaller scale. But the corporations and the, the big players are allowed to do it. Mm -hmm. But yet these people that are just trying to put bread on the table for their family in a smaller bit has to go and be incarcerated for years. It, 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 it makes no sense to me. Didn't Biden campaign on this? Not to turn this into politics, no, but didn't yeah. he campaign to, to, to do yes. something about yes. that? Biden campaigned that nobody with, for marijuana should be in prison when states are selling it legally, and uh, he was going to um, release them, but it so hasn't far yet that, happened. That no. has not happened. That's why I go yeah. to events asking. I got letters at these events for freedomgrow.org to sign these letters asking President Biden to release the nonviolent cannabis prisoners. So... If you haven't checked out freedomgrow.org, please check us out. O'Reilly Auto Parts, man, they are in the business of keeping your car on the road. 
They offer friendly and helpful service and the parts knowledge you need for all your maintenance and repairs. You know the jingle? Oh, yeah. We're going to do the jingle at the end of this. Nice. I can't right? wait for it. Yeah. So listen. Listen to the end. They've got thousands of parts and accessories in stock, either in store or online, so you never have to worry if you're in a jam. The team at O'Reilly Auto Parts can test your battery for free in or out of your car. If it needs to be replaced, they'll help you find just the right battery for your car. Need your windshield wipers replaced, a brake light fixed, or a quick service? They'll help you find the right part or point you to the nearest local repair shop for help. Whether you're a car aficionado or an auto novice, You'll find the employees at O'Reilly Auto Parts. They're knowledgeable, helpful, and best of all, they're friendly. The professional parts people at O'Reilly Auto Parts are your one-stop shop for all things auto. Do it yourself, and you can find what you need in-store or online. Stop by O'Reilly Auto Parts today or visit us at O'ReillyAuto.com. That's O'ReillyAuto.com. O'Reilly's Auto Parts. Ow! <laughs> you better put that in there. Hey, you know the one thing that we glossed over, and that, and and for good reason, there were some things to talk about. But is his championship in the IMSA in 1984? Is that one of the most unprecedented racing stories that you can think of? Being that he was an independent racer, beating factory-supported teams, and uh, uh, and some of the best-known IMSA drivers in the world. I mean, you went in there and did that. I, do, I can't think of a more of an underdog story than that one. Once people find out, know your, the, you know, the Randy Lanier story, I, I can't think of another example that compares to that. We're really, your intentions are really from here, and you want to win races, and everybody that's in the team wants to win races. But for whatever reason, it was meant to happen because we were racing against the Porsche factory, the Jaguar factory, the Ford factory, and Ford was throwing it at it. They brought in the best hot shoes they could find. Klaus Ludwig, great factory driver, fast, super fast. And um, Derek Bell, Derek. Al Holbert, the Porsche team factories. These guys are yeah. all A drivers Absolutely. from the best, man. How do you explain it? And, well, one thing about it is I was fortunate enough to have the funding and as you know, to run a top-level race team, if you don't have the funding, you're not going to be at competing at that level because mm -hmm. it takes testing. It takes R&D. And I was able to hit the racetracks, do some R&D, do some testing. And when we roll off the track, we was fast right off the get-go from all the testing that we've done. So what's Pam doing today? Pam just gave back the boys to my son a little while ago, and she went to work. Yeah, She's a... Uh, assistant director to a substance abuse treatment yeah. facility. That's right. She worked in that for uh, while you were in prison. I think she right. Did, That's did some of yeah, that. yeah. What kind of uh, what is everybody? I mean, I'm, we've heard from you, but like, what's Pam and and Alan and everybody's response to the the mm. uh, the you know, the Netflix documentary? What what one thing have y'all done? I guess would that be it that got the most response? Then you know the yeah, your, the Netflix show, yeah. The Netflix show has been quite accepted and watched by yeah. tens of millions oh, yeah. of people. So 
yeah. So, so y'all, that, that's pretty good. Yeah. I know, so Pam, the, the, was that comfortable for Pam and Alan and them to to because they're living, they're just normal people, yeah. right? And now yeah. to be sort of to have their story known yeah. and like, hey, aren't you? You know, when you go somewhere, hey, you're the yeah. uh, you're that person, right? <laughs> Did, did yeah. they are they everybody kind of tripping out a little bit over that? No, they're pretty com- they're comfortable with it. They're, okay. It's not that big. Uh, I don't think they've been noticed it. But the book, this, yeah, this is amazing because as I was writing the book, my attorney was telling me, you know, you're not a published writer. Don't expect to get an advancement. Uh, maybe you want to self-publish it. All this stuff. Mm-hmm. Well, I got an advancement. Then, about three months ago, I inked a deal for this to be a full feature film. Oh, yeah. Nice. So it's coming to the big screen. Uh, yeah. I'm just, like, stoked about it. That would uh, be a hell of a movie. Yeah, I just want to tell you, right now, 176 of these are going to the federal prisons. Mm. And I'm giving them all to the, to the prisoners that we support. And uh, a portion of the proceeds all go to freedomgrow.org. Very good. Where, where can people... Find this book. So this book's at uh, Amazon.com. Yep. It's ready to be delivered today, yep. and it's at Barnes & Noble. Are you doing any autograph signings or anything like that? I haven't anything signed yet, but I will. Yeah, yep. I'm, I'm looking into doing some book signing at some Barnes & Nobles. Uh, but I went to one the other day in my Fort Lauderdale area. And go, oh, well, we stopped book signing because of COVID. Oh, that's mm-hmm. right. So that's yep. a little issue right now. I haven't been able to. Sure. But, uh I will be doing some. Uh, back on, backing up to Dale's question real quick, I was curious. Most, I, I would assume that like Chuck or Alan or Pam, when you guys watch the Netflix thing for the first time, you don't know what the others have said at that point, right? I, I never was involved with you, anybody's right. interview. I had no idea what the interview said. Yeah. They asked me when we did Netflix, they didn't want me around to influence anybody. So I never knew what questions would be asked. I never knew what would questions be asked with me or questions asked with them. So what was the response from yourself? I know you can speak best for you, but like when you're hearing Chuck talk about, I mean, he was prevalent in that thing. He's all through it because he was your banker or he was your money guy. Um, Did anything surprise you? Mm. Did anything anger you about what yeah, Chuck well, might have said, or anybody for that matter, because you didn't know until you watched it for the first time. No, I didn't really get surprised by anything. Uh, he kind of came out of the closet. Uh, I knew that's true. Yeah, I knew that he was um, gay yeah. from when I was in the joint. I had heard about it. Uh, I didn't know he was gay when he worked for me, and it's all good. Uh, that's the lifestyle he wants to choose. Um, so, so that was new information. What then. about yeah. his? What about his remorse? You right. know, what about how how um, I thought I felt his you know he was quite genuine. Yeah, I, genuine I feel in his I remorse. feel yeah I feel that um, he's sincere. Yeah. About his remorse and and I feel that Alan's being Alan and um, you know uh, he hasn't come to grips yet with uh, the forgiveness uh, of the people that testified. I had a lot of witnesses. I had twenty four government informants. 64 witnesses altogether, but 24 more was people involved in the operation. Mm-hmm. And in, I've forgiven them all. Uh, yeah. uh, in the same way many of the people were watching the, the Netflix thing for the first time, have you given anybody advanced copies of your book that are in the book, the uh, people that are in the book? Um, I've given 
most of the books that got advanced for me was for people with social influence sure. and okay. Um, so none of the people, none of the characters so that were you know. Is Alan in your book? No, I just I'm sending book Alan today. Okay, <laughs> so this is new. Yeah, this is hot yeah, off the press. yeah, yeah. This is hot. Yeah, is anyone nervous about? I mean, like anytime, I'm, even if it's a good intention book, I mean, it, to know that your name is in a book, sometimes that could give you a little anxiety. Yeah, I did, I did change some names. Did uh, you? In the book, yeah, I okay. did, because um, some of the people I couldn't get a hold of to see if they were comfortable with that. Yeah. So in talking with the publishing company, I just decided, you know what, let's put another name on this character. Yeah. Uh, yeah. You know, Protect them. Yeah, I just, you know. That's fair. I want privacy yeah. if, if people don't want to be broadsided. <laughs> yep. So wow. um, what are you doing with your time? Like I, you know, I, I paint. The, yeah, I saw uh, that. Are you still doing that? I love to paint. This, this has taken uh, almost a year of my time to five days a week. So I put the painting on the back burner. And uh, I like to oil paint. I, I put oil on canvas. But I want to tell you something amazing that has happened to me. I am so blessed. The state of New Jersey in March awarded me a cultivation license and not just any cultivation license, a tier four, which is to cultivate up to 75,000 square feet of canopy, which is 40,000 pounds of weed a year, legally. Mm -hmm. So with that blessing, I'll be able to help these people that are incarcerated and their families who are struggling, wanting to work two jobs in one day, that can't feed six or seven children that they have because their main breadwinner is in, in jail for 100 pounds of weed. So I've got an opportunity here that is like once in a lifetime. So I've been in New Jersey uh, trying to acquire property. I have what's called a conditional license. They gave me, the state gave me 160 days, 120, and they gave me 45-day extension to show the CRC, the Cannabis Regulatory Commission, that I have property in an approved municipality. So I have, uh, I've eyed my property. I have a letter of intent right now, and I'm looking for investors and partners that want to take this journey uh, on being a profits for purpose. Yeah. My question then would be having having the history that you have and the even I mean you know more about this than I do obviously but aren't you how can you I'd be nervous to go back to go into even a legitimate business in something that got me in so much trouble I'd be nervous like that that I was uh you know going to be able to do this just like the lady that helped you, right? That's the right. woman that came to the White House. You know, she yeah. was told, California. Hey man, she was yeah, told, yeah. hey man, this is all this is all good. You're clear, you're free and clear. And then she yeah. ends up going to jail. Yeah, Stephanie. So yeah. I guess if I were you, you'd spent 27 years in jail, and you'd be, I'd be like, I don't want nothing to do with that. I don't want nothing yeah. to do with weed for the rest of my life. Yeah. Um, but so, you're willing to go into big business with yeah. with this opportunity. So right now, as I said, there's 38 states. The pendulum is swinging, and there's so many more states that's coming online. The federal government has just written some bills that's in legislation now for safe banking. They've got bills pending for descheduling 
marijuana from a Schedule One narcotic, which it shouldn't have been to begin with. They've also got some bills to legalize this. When will it come? Nobody knows. I, I suspect in the next five years, maybe, legalization federally. But meanwhile, all these states are on board in a big, big way. Mm-hmm. It, 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 it's not changing. It's not going backwards. I got you. And the federal government um, is, they, they see all these states. These states are incorporating laws that we can't get pinched on it. And they, I have an opportunity here to help others. And being of service and helping others is a wonderful thing. And uh, I'm all about it. Mm-hmm. I want to give Matthew, even Alex, the opportunity. Um, I know, Matthew, you're pretty excited about having Randy here today. Yes, um, is there anything, uh, you know, that we haven't covered today or any questions that you've got that you want to make sure you be able, be able to ask? Yeah, Randy, um, thank you. Um, I'm fascinated by your story, and I'm a big fan, and I've always had one question I've wanted to ask you that I've never heard and all the different things you've done from Rolling Stone to all these – all the different uh, media outlets and it's through your jail time through, through everything you've been through, you know, you wanted to be a racer uh, from, from the get go when you heard that Indy 500 on the radio, when you were a kid, Um, you had such an incredible run at Indy on your rookie season. If you weren't convicted, have you ever thought of that? Like, do you think you would have won an Indy 500? (laughs) Have you ever daydreamed about that? So in, in my mind, any racetrack that I go to when I was racing, I was going to win it. I'm trying to win a race. I'm, not, I'm trying to win. So after my first run at Indy, I thought, I got this. And my next oval was Michigan 500. We qualified quite well. Um, ended up cutting a tire. Uh, Mario had crashed. I cut a tire. Uh, in that race, hit the wall at 214 miles an Bad hour. Wreck. Bad wreck. <laughs> As you know, uh, when you take them shots like that, uh, it takes a moment sometimes, but yet you want to get back in a race car. I had a compound fracture to my right femur bone, along with the noggin on my head, and that unfortunately was th- the end of my racing career because. I got indicted and went to the joint. But I thought I definitely was destined to win Indy 500. You got anything, Alex? No, I'm just blown away by this whole conversation, honestly. This is a uh, – I haven't watched the Netflix documentary yet, so this was – I'm definitely going to watch it tonight, though. Yeah, definitely yeah. want to read the book, Survival mm-hmm. of the Fastest. Yeah. With Randy Lanier out today. Um, Mike? Where are you going to go smoke this joint? No, I'm kidding. I'm, <laughs> I'm playing. I, yeah, I echo everything these guys yeah. say. It's it's been a privilege yeah. to have you in this table and just sharing your story. And uh, I can't wait to read your book. Thank you. I, I got to tell you, I've been comfortable sitting here. Good. Kicking with you guys. Yeah, good. All right. I want to see your shop. Okay. Walk around. Yeah. And. Uh, just look, man. We had a good conversation. Yeah. yeah. Well, man, we um, we uh, we really enjoy doing what we're doing, and Not right on. We we uh, we're we're very fortunate to be able to you know sit down and have these kind of conversations with a lot of different people, and and um, I heard about your story probably, um, or kind of I listened to a podcast you did about 16, 15 months ago. Oh, that was my podcast. 
that what Randy Lanier smoked? I yeah. think so, yeah. Yeah, I did a podcast. Yeah. I did a, a, a little different. I yeah. did a, a series. That's right. I did six, six uh, it was my first That's podcast. Right. That was my first podcast. Well, I listened to that on, on, the, way to, on the way home from Ohio on oh, a yeah? hunting trip, uh-huh. and uh, it was a fascinating story. And so that's when I kind of started to you know, want to know more about you and stuff. Thanks for uh, – you came all the way from Florida to yeah. be here with us today. Yeah. And uh, just want to thank you for taking the time out of, out of, out of your day to be here. Uh, we, want, we hope that this book deal goes really well for thank you. you. Um, I can't wait to start reading it, knowing now that um, – there's things in this book that we didn't hear about today that we didn't see in a documentary yeah. that we haven't even, you know, there'll be a lot of new things that we're going to learn yeah. about you. Um, so if you have uh, been a, a fan of anything Randy Lanier, anything in this book, uh, you might be learning a lot of new things about Randy that, that you haven't heard yet. So want to make sure people uh, go out there and support that. Um, it's been, it's been uh a lot Di- of fun, man. Different. God, it's been a lot of fun. <laughs> different. Yeah, that's a good way to put it. Different yeah. for a racing podcast. Yeah. Well, it and is. Mike Joy didn't have smuggling stories last week. Uh, yeah. You did. <laughs> that's right. Well, well, we mixed it up with some racing stories <laughs> and some uh, smuggling, some prison. Yep. We kind of covered it. We could certainly sit here and talk all day. Yep. And uh, I hope people appreciate the, the information you gave us today and, and listen to your story. Thank you. Thank you for inviting me. Of course. I, I really appreciate you. Yeah, I hope you enjoyed it, man. Um, uh, we sure did. So, Randy Lanier on the Dale Jr. Download. You know, Mike, whether I've been in the garage, right, as a driver or in the studio as a member of the media, the biggest lesson I've learned over the years is that we are all better off with an ally, a friend, a partner. My favorite part of the download has always been the opportunity it gives me to connect with such a wide range of people. They love racing as much as I do, and it means so much to me that when we leave the guest segment, I leave it with a feeling that I can call each and every guest on the download a true ally. Thank you, Ally, for your continued support of the show and the entire Dirty Mo Media team. All right, everybody, there it is. Um, 393, uh, part two of Randy Lanier, just an incredible story about a guy who, uh, risked it all literally and paid a lot of, you know, paid the price. I'm fascinated by these type of stories, the Gary Ballews, the Randy Lanier's, and there's, you know, so many other people out there that have kind of went a similar route, um, and taken those type of risks to, uh, to do something they they wanted to do real badly and that's race cars so uh thanks to our sponsors xfinity bojangles ally everybody for giving us the opportunity and um hope everybody enjoyed how we did this you know breaking it down like this and and uh just a great opportunity to get get randy here and i'm glad you got to learn about this too mike because i know when we went into this several weeks ago talking about getting randy here you you weren't uh i was excited for you to kind of learn about this yeah i didn't know who he was right uh, but then in, in researching him, I even had conversations with other people when we found out that Randy Lanier was actually going to be in our studio, like Jordan Taylor and I were talking. I mean, like the IMSA series guys are uh, fascinated by this story, as they would be, right? Um, so it's, look, we should just reiterate that Randy's got a new book out, Survival of the Fastest. That's one of the things that, I, I mean, even after today's podcast, even if you've watched the Netflix special, this thing here is going to be worth reading. So uh, I'm going to absolutely be one of those people. So Survival of the Fastest with Randy Lanier. 
All right, everybody. Have a great week. Uh, have a great weekend. And uh, we'll see you in Michigan. It's going to be a lot of fun. Oh, by the way, in Michigan. Play with play guy. Well, you just got a little advice from Mike Joy, and all of a sudden you're signing up, boys. Well, I'm looking forward to it. Should be a lot of fun. It's a you know that's a pretty straightforward race. Great racetrack. Should be pretty uh, pretty good action. Um, be kind of like Atlanta. Yeah, hopefully so. Yeah, yeah. All right. We'll see, man. Good luck. See everybody in Michigan. Check out Dirty Mode Media. Check out Dirty Mode Media. Dirty Mode Media. On Twitter, Facebook, TikTok, and Instagram.